Welcome to the PhD Podcast Project from Yale's Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. In each episode, we interview graduate students in different programs at Yale to learn about the exciting work being done at the frontiers of research. We'll dive into the motivations behind their work and how it may impact our lives and those of future generations. I am Alvin, a first-year PhD student in CS. I'm excited to talk today with Alessandro, a third-year PhD student in chemical and environmental engineering. Yeah, uh, I'm Alessandro Zuli. I'm kind of a third year, and I'm in chemical and environmental engineering, specifically the environmental engineering side. Mm-hmm. And uh, specifically, you know, like uh, the projects that you're working on, kind of, can you give a, a brief elevator pitch for those of us uh, not in the know? Yeah. So what I work on is mostly turning wastewater into useful epidemiological data. So everyone poops. And in doing so, all of us are providing a detailed epidemiological sort of sample. Mm -hmm. Now, there's also all these wastewater collection systems that take it all to one centralized place. Mm -hmm. And so you leverage these two things, and you can measure things in that mixed wastewater sample that tell you important information about the spread of disease and the use of certain drugs or chemicals within the population. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We've done it for SARS-CoV-2. Uh, we worked with the the city of New Haven and the state of Connecticut to monitor, I think, half of the population of Connecticut was being monitored through the wastewater uh, program up until October of last year. Wow, okay. That's, uh, that's sort of interesting. So you mentioned, like, uh, tracking SARS-CoV-2 COVID-19, mm-hmm. of course. Um, I can imagine, like, uh, you know, before the pandemic, you know, maybe things were a little bit slower in uh, in general interest. Can you, like, talk a little bit about how things have uh, yeah. kind of focused on you all? I mean, so, before SARS-CoV-2 started, I used to work on environmental samples. Mm-hmm. So, we'd swab desks, we'd take samples off of air filters, mm-hmm. and you'd sort of look at all of the metagenomic data. You'd look at what's here, what's there can we measure influenza on school desks for kids, right? So we can see how many of them are getting exposed. And uh, December of 2019, I'm a Reddit addict. So uh, stories started popping up about SARS-CoV-2 happening in uh, Wuhan in China. Right, right. And my professor even mentioned it because he's big on these type of things, obviously. He does... He is the head of, like, the environmental monitoring at Yale and that type of research. And I brought it up to him, like, can we get samples from a hospital somewhere in, uh, in China? We work with a lot of Chinese universities and a lot of Chinese professors. He was like, yeah, we might look into it. And then, you know, like, a month and a half later, it was here. So we started working immediately on the, on the wastewater monitoring project. He actually... I had to cancel a trip. I would have been stuck in Italy otherwise. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Yeah. That's interesting. So, <laughs> it's kind of funny, like, um, you have, like, this want to get samples, and then suddenly it's here anyways, so yep. certainly it's a lot Didn't easier. Didn't have to wait too long. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, th- this this whole uh, tracking wastewater uh, idea, you know, behind yeah. the research, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, that came into being? Yeah. So... I mean, if we go back, back, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we go to the 70s, the 80s, yeah. when all of this biotechnology stuff, all these PCR reactions were super new. Mm-hmm. People started looking at polio virus. 
So I don't know if you know, but the polio virus vaccine was attenuated virus. So right. literal virus that was put into people. And so to test whether a vaccination program worked, what they did was they take wastewater samples before the vaccination program and then after the wastewater or after the vaccination program and see, okay, it's super high levels now. And so they knew, okay, people are vaccinated because we're not seeing cases, but we are seeing it in the wastewater. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was sort of the proof of concept, and that was what prompted us to try it for SARS-CoV-2. In, uh, in 2012, my professor, Jordan Pecha, was working with a graduate student named Cal Bibby, who's now a professor at, I want to say Vanderbilt, it might be Notre Dame. Um, but they did a metagenomic analysis of sludge. Um, sludge is the primary settled solids of wastewater. So you flush the toilet and all of the heavy stuff sort of sinks to the bottom at the wastewater treatment plant. And that's what they took. Mm -hmm. They took it and they did what's known as a metagenomic analysis, which is pretty much just, you look for everything, right? So all of these viruses, they looked at them and they said, okay, in most of these samples, we find herpes virus, we find coronavirus, we find adenovirus. And so, fast forward, let's say, to 2020, March of 2020, and Jordan already has these contacts to grab these wastewater samples. So we grab them, and we know that historically coronaviruses show up in wastewater. No, no one's done real quantitative stuff. No one's done, like, PCR reactions to measure the exact concentrations. But because we knew that it would show up, we thought, let's try it. Um... And so, yeah, we started, I mean, it was hectic those first few weeks, you know. We didn't know what we were doing because you don't know what you're doing when you're starting off in research. Yeah, yeah. Um, Had to filter all the samples. We tried all of these different extraction methods. We ended up on this super long and super involved extraction method that has now been cut down significantly. But, you know, at the time it was just like, this works, let's not change it too much got the samples and then you use what's known as a polymerase chain reaction to actually measure the concentration of SARS-CoV-2 now a polymerase chain reaction refers to these enzymes that this famously high dude at Berkeley just had an epiphany he he was taking a bunch of LSD and he decided this is the technology I'm going to invent won a Nobel prize for it and now it's used in all of biology, all of biotechnology. And what it is, is that you are effectively copying a very specific part of DNA or RNA over and over. And each time the the copying happens, it glows. And it glows a little bit more. And so you measure how much it's glowing, and by measuring how much it's glowing, you can measure what the actual concentration is. So, yeah... I mean, sorry, I kind of forgot where I was going with that. So you were doing this research, right? And then um, how did it lead to, I guess, like, you know, a a paper or something? Yeah. Um, I mean, we started the research in March of 2020. And those first few months were just getting stuff up and running. We eventually had this sort of great system in place. And the entire time, we were actually in contact with public health authorities in the state of Connecticut. So the Department of Public Health and uh, Maritza Bond in New Haven worked with us and we'd give them updates, right? We'd say, okay, COVID is going up in the wastewater. 
we hadn't done all the analysis. We didn't know that it was a leading indicator, but we were able to tell them it's going up, it's going down. And they were like, okay, that looks about right. We can plan for that. And so from there, we had all of this data for New Haven. And we started doing analysis. I did a whole bunch of data analysis. Um, you look at the time lags, you do some modeling. And what we found was that this wastewater signal almost always came before you would see it in cases. Now, like a lot of things in science, that's something that makes sense logically, but you still need to prove it, right? And that was sort of the big contribution of our first paper. Our first paper showed that this wastewater signal was between zero to four days ahead of clinical tests. And the reason for that, when you think about it, is relatively simple. So when would you be shedding the virus? You don't immediately get a test when you start showing symptoms, right? You have to schedule it, you have to go, and then the sample has to be processed. Mm -hmm. So even if we say that you start shedding at the exact moment you, sh you start symptoms, between you shedding symptoms and it being counted by the state, there's anywhere between zero to a full week and a half, right? Depending on how good the monitoring programs is, are. Connecticut is great. Like, we process samples super fast. It's still about five days before it actually shows up in the counts. And that's just because you're organizing all these things, you're pooling all the samples, and then you have to see what the result is. But in wastewater, you've already started shedding. You've already gone to the bathroom, and it's already showing up in the wastewater treatment plant. And so that, that time delta is fairly important because the idea is that by measuring wastewater, you don't necessarily have to measure all the cases. And you can still get a very good idea of what's happening in the population. And that gives you both more time to actually act, to enforce a mask mandate if you see a very sharp rise, or to, I don't know, implement, uh, spin up testing programs and tracking and all those sort of things. And yeah, that was, that was really the first paper. The first paper was, I mean, there was a whole bunch of analysis that went into it too, but the thing that really caught people's attention was just this graph of COVID-19 going up in wastewater and then right after it, you see COVID-19 going up in the population. Mm -hmm. And it was just undeniable, you know? That's awesome. That's awesome. So uh, what got you into, like, doing this research in the first place? Or, like, um, what sort of stuff were you doing before you got into wastewater research? So the timeline, right? So yeah. that was 2020. So that would have been, like, two years. So you're still a first year? Yeah, that was my first year, actually. Oh, okay, okay. So I, I came to Yale in 2019. Mm -hmm. I graduated from undergrad in 2018, took a year off to work, and then went to grad school. And um, in undergrad, I was a physics and civil and environmental engineering major. And it was, it was a very random path to actually get there. I started as a bio major, right? Um, moved to electrical engineering, said this wasn't quite for me. Went to physics, loved physics, but... I was being pragmatic at the time and thought that it'd be better to have an engineering degree to actually get a job. Right. In hindsight, probably wasn't necessary. But it led to meeting this, this great PhD student, Alexander Polasco at UCLA, who got me into research. Um, 
It was during a discussion section. She was super animated and asked if anyone was interested, and I said yes. And so I started doing research, and this research was very much focused on sort of biological environmental engineering and biotechnology. Mm -hmm. Specifically, I worked on mixed microbial cultures to degrade dioxane and chlorinated um, solvents. So sorry, this was in when you were an undergrad? In undergrad at UCLA. So, and, um, so that's where I started being interested in sort of the biotechnology side of environmental engineering in leveraging these, uh, techno- this, these biotechnologies to actually engineer the environment around us and to learn more about the environment around us. So coming to Yale, Jordan was sort of the professor to do that with, um, Environmental engineering is relatively small. We have seven professors, and so each one is, you know, an expert in their field. Yale is a great university, and when you have a small department, each each professor really needs to bring something to the table. So I started working with them. Um, the first project he put me on was something I was very familiar with. It was doing these QPCR on school desks. Um, we'd swabbed a bunch of school desks in Colorado, and we measured adenovirus, we measured rhinovirus, and coronavirus, importantly. Because, I mean, I think most people know this now, but coronavirus, before the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, was mainly known for the first SARS pandemic in 2000, not pandemic, epidemic in 2003, and for giving you the common cold. That's right. what most coronaviruses give you. It's just a little sniffle. Now, obviously, SARS-CoV-2 was very different, but we had the sort of expertise in working with these things. And so, I mean, once once I started, I was kind of hooked, honestly. I, I enjoyed seeing these results. I enjoyed the modeling aspect of it quite a bit. Um, it gave me an outlet for sort of that the physics that I missed sometimes right, in engineering, right, right? Some of that math and stuff. So, yeah, I, I mean, it was a series of fortunate events that sort of led to it. Yeah. Fortunate for my research, unfortunate <laughs> for the state the of the world. world. Oh my yeah. Gosh, yeah. So um, you grew up in Italy, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then you sort of, you moved over here for... I moved to the U.S. in fifth grade. In fifth grade, okay, yeah. okay. Really early on, like, do you, do you see that impacting, like, how you just generally pursued research or, or did things? Or I mean, it's it's definitely been a big part of my life. I was born in Italy, but I spent most of my childhood moving around. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was five the first time we moved from Italy. We moved from Italy to Brussels, and... You know, my parents just threw me into public school, said, learn French, good luck. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of been the running theme, and it's sort of been... It has impacted how I look at my research. Right. Um, because I just realized that these things are doable, they're difficult, and you'll be frustrated. And I mean, I don't think I've ever been as frustrated as I was those first few months in a new country where you genuinely don't understand a word. Right. Like, at the time, it was difficult moving every, every like, couple years. Mm-hmm. 
Just because as a kid, you, you like your friends and you don't like... I mean, I, some of the listeners, too, I figure will be around my age. And so they grew up right around when the internet was taking off. Right. Right. So, like, when we were five, yeah, the internet was a thing. But the five-year-olds weren't on the internet yet. And so when you moved, right, even having someone's email was difficult. And so reconnecting with those people in, like, Brussels and Switzerland and Spain and Mexico City has has honestly been more difficult than I think it would be now. Mm-hmm. But it's been good. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. So can you talk a little bit about how, like, you ended up in the U.S., you know, um, sort of what led to being here for, you know, high school and undergrad and, and grad school? Yeah. Um, I mean... When I, when I was little in Italy, mm-hmm. my father was still in grad school when I was born. Oh, okay, so okay. followed in his footsteps somewhat. Um, and then, you know, grad school ended and he got a real job. And my, fam- my parents always wanted to move around quite a bit. And, you know, as a kid, you don't get a vote in it. So mm-hmm. we'd move from it- we moved from Italy to Brussels first. Um, from Brussels, we moved to Switzerland, Switzerland to Spain, Spain to California, California to Mexico City, Connecticut, California, Connecticut. So I've bounced around the coasts between California and Connecticut quite a bit. And, um, yeah, first I was in fifth grade when I moved to the U.S., um, didn't speak any any English, like, mm-hmm. whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't even, like, the languages I already knew helped. Because, like, when you know Italian, French and Spanish, relatively simpler to learn. Mm-hmm. Even German, honestly. I, I don't speak great German, but it was easier to learn than English was. So you, you also mentioned, um, you know, just sort of filling out surveys and stuff that you were naturalized as well, so you're yeah. right now a citizen. Uh, can you talk a little bit about when that happened, you know, the whole process? Yeah, so uh, freshman year of college. So the application process actually started back in high school, mm-hmm. but it's slow. Mm-hmm. Like, naturalization, I was lucky enough to have a green card through my dad who was here for work, and the naturalization process, I was the guinea pig for my family. So I was the first one to actually go through the naturalization process. And it starts senior year of high school, you know, on top of having to do all your college apps, deciding where you're going to go for that. I had to fill out all of these applications that honestly made so little sense. Um, And the terrifying part was that if you were missing an application at an appointment, it was like three months before you could fix it and you'd have to just show up to the next appointment. They didn't have printers. Like, that was a whole other thing. The first appointment I went to, I was missing like three forms. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was honestly one of the more stressful experiences as like an 18-year-old kid. Like, I've traveled alone since I was maybe like 14, 15, and that still doesn't compare to standing in that line and just being like, it felt like I was doing something illegal, despite the fact that I was here entirely legally. And so I can't imagine 
how much worse it can be for a lot of people, you know? I remember uh, I was getting my American passport, and my passport photo wasn't the right color white background. And it was just, like, off-white, and it's like, no, 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 you need to retake this. It was $85 to retake the picture there. Uh, Making a killing, you know. They really, they milk you for all it's worth. The naturalization process is not cheap over the long term. Mm -hmm. All the forms cost money. And that is aside from the stress. All right. I think the most stressful part is by far the civics exam and the, the English language. So you have to show some level of mastery of the English language, but they never really explain what that mastery is. And like, I'd been in high school. I was like, I took AP lit. I'm fine. Right. Right. But the back of your mind is constantly going like, am I fine? (laughs) Like, um, it was fun. Uh, this, this very nice Korean lady was my sort of interviewer for the civics exam. They don't even ask much. Like if you took us history in the U in the U S you would pass with flying colors. And even if you didn't, it's stuff like who was president during the civil war, <laughs> you know, like things you do learn even through osmosis. Right. Yeah. Um, but Going into that interview was much more stressful than it needed to be. And then brief irrational fear that I had during the naturalization process was when you actually go and you've been approved, right? They're going to they're gonna make you a U.S. citizen. Great day. You go and you have to bring your green card. Mm. And you give them your green card, which is... As an immigrant, that's just a terrifying thought to give, like, the only legal proof that you have of being in the country to someone else. And then they punch a hole through it. Mm -hmm. So there's a brief period of time between them punching a hole through it and you actually being made, you know, a full U.S. citizen where you're just like, what am I (laughs) right now? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, and again, I think... Overall, I I had it relatively easy. I got to go to high school here. I, you know, I did not have to deal with DACA or any of those Mm. things that are honestly a big thing. You know, Southern California, UCLA, a lot of my friends had to deal directly with that that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, how did, when did this like whole process finish up for you? Uh, it started uh, senior year of high school, mm-hmm. and I was made a U.S. citizen during sophomore year of college. Yeah, okay, okay. It was, it was about two and a half years. Okay. Yeah. Not the longest, but definitely on the longer side of things. That was 10% of my life at that point, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so going into, like, grad school, basically all of that was sorted out. Can you talk a little bit about just, like... Um, deciding that you wanted to do environmental engineering like in undergrad and like going into applications and stuff how that all happened yeah um i mean i wanted to do environmental engineering just because i've always been a a hiker and outdoorsy person and someone who was very much into the environment and endangered species Mm -hmm. but i didn't want to be an environmental scientist i i've always been sort of on the problem-solving side of things. And environmental engineering just fit the bill for that. And then 
you know, I started working for a year and, uh, people tell you this, but you really don't believe it until you're actually working, but real jobs are really boring. Like particularly when you're an environmental engineer, I was an environmental consultant for a, um, a real estate firm. They don't really listen to you. Like you're there because legally they have to have you there, but uh, you just, you do all this work and then most of the time they don't listen to you. And at some point you just go, well, you know, I'm just kind of done. So grad school it was because I've always liked learning and I did want to, I wanted to contribute something, mm-hmm. you know, and grad school is actually a great place for that because you get to make this little tiny imperceptible blip on sort of human knowledge. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and that's why I applied for a whole bunch of environmental engineering programs. Uh, Yale was among them. Uh, Some of the other ones I was considering were UC Berkeley and Stanford, ASU, UCLA. I don't remember. I think UNC was another great program. But what really got me for Yale was the fact that Yale was a small and very intimate feeling program. So the professors knew you before you got here. The, the sort of overall atmosphere of students was very welcoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're like sort of focusing your research or like figuring out sort of next steps for uh, you know wastewater analysis and, and, and whatever else, like... Do you, do you, like, ever see your sort of background, you know, um, influencing the choices that you make? Or yeah. yeah. I mean, um, this isn't directly tied to wastewater, but mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I first started doing research um, and started working in Mahendra Lab at UCLA, uh, right. that's where I first started my sort of research journey, was because I am from right on the edge of, like, southern Italy. Uh, now, for context, northern and southern Italy are very different. And the main difference is that southern Italy is much, much poorer than northern Italy. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a whole host of issues. One of the huge ones that's plagued southern Italy is that they have all of this environmental contamination. Um, dioxane, dioxins, chlorinated solvents are all present in water and cause, you know, deformities um, in children elevated cancer rates and all that stuff. And so that was a motive. I mean, I enjoyed research regardless, but it made it more significant to me that I was working on a potential solution to these things. And um, that I, you know, I could someday see it applied somewhere. And I think that carries over to wastewater too, because something we focus on with wastewater is the fact that Compared to traditional testing, it's very, very inexpensive, right? And that's just because for traditional testing, you have to run... Population of New Haven is 200,000. You want to get good coverage, you need to run 20,000 tests a day. Wastewater, one sample. Single sample that you run, and it tells you pretty much the same information as those 20,000 tests. Because, like, you're literally collecting from the treatment plant yeah so like it's all collated together it's all together and you know you do some math you do some modeling 
you're able to get some pretty accurate data for the situation at large. Mm -hmm. And where you can really apply this is where you have um, sort of more low-income or vulnerable populations. Um, I, I don't know if I mentioned, but I'm working on a paper that's analyzing wastewater data out of the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, no one likes to think about prisons, but, you know, there's a bunch of people there. Yeah. And we should at least try to keep Make them sure safe. they're not dying. Of yeah. yeah, exactly. You know? Um, and again, southern, southern Italy is very poor, so it is a pipe dream of mine to sort of get these wastewater technologies out there and being able to monitor these diseases that, again, are much more rampant in lower income areas, mm -hmm. right? Like HPV is is at very low rates now in the U.S. because we vaccinated everyone. But lower-income areas aren't nearly as vaccinated. So, and, yeah, I, I think the first step to trying to solve these problems is to identify the problem and measure the scale of the problem, and that's what we can really do with wastewater data. Thank you for listening to the Ph.D. Podcast Project from Yale's Graduate School of Art and Sciences. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to subscribe and check out other episodes on our website.